Welcome to Fashion Talks for Industry, a special series of Fashion Talks. I'm your host, Donna Bishop. In these episodes, I will be speaking with experts across all manner of professions who will offer their insights, tools, strategies that you can use in your business, whether you are an entrepreneur or an executive, a founder or a freelancer, whether you are just starting your career or have years of experience under your belt. Hi, and thank you for joining me today. I hope that you are doing well. We are talking about money, specifically outside investments in your business, and I'll be doing it all with investor Kazem Mohammed. Let's get right to it. Kazem, thank you so much for joining me today on Fashion Talks. I so appreciate you being here. My pleasure. So we are going to get into the topic of outside financing, something that is of interest, curiosity, intention for a lot of entrepreneurs um, and designers in the fashion community. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be an expert in this area? Sure. I have been in the business of investing for over 10 years now, and a common theme that runs through my experience is my focus on all things future of commerce, future of retail, future of brands. So I felt very fortunate to be able to deploy capital in platforms that essentially change the way that we engage in commerce, um, but also consumer brands that are um, telling really compelling stories to help consumers part or part ways rather with their hard earned money uh, to, to purchase really exciting products. Well, and we're going to get into that idea of the storytelling of the brand, I am sure. But before we kind of dig in, let's just bring everyone on the same page and do a little bit of VC, Outside Investing 101. What exactly does it mean to a business when they bring in outside financing? And what are the various kinds that you think are the most relevant for our conversation today? Yeah, so there's such an, I mean, the market's a bit changed in this particular moment in time. Uh, that we find ourselves uh, talking, but there's such an abundance of capital in general relative to, I'd say, maybe 20, 30 years ago, specifically for, um, you know, different types of companies, including companies that are rethinking the future of retail or rethinking the future of brands. Uh, In terms of like tactically, the different forms of capital that are out there, you've got, you know, capital from uh, family offices, right? Whether it's in the form of private equity or venture capital, the fund that um, you know I hope to to run with my colleagues called Whittington Ventures, where uh, a venture capital fund we're set up as a completely independent GP, but a, a large proportion of our capital comes from a family office with very deep and defined roots in the retail industry. Uh, so you've got venture capital funds of all kinds um, that have focus areas in a whole bunch of different industries. You've got private equity firms. Uh, they've been very active in investing in CPG and consumer brands. A lot of them like to do roll-ups where they collect a different, you know, uh, set of companies or create a portfolio of brands in a specific category and essentially do some financial engineering and some restructuring to get economies of scale by way of constructing that portfolio. Um, and then, you know, there's friends and family. <laughs> That's kind of where I should have started, maybe. Uh, the most uh, rudimentary form of capital, just when you're about to get off the ground. And then there's crowdsourcing. There's a lot of new platforms out there now that help you get connected to specific accredited investors for specific industries. Um, so all in all, I'd say there's just so many different kinds of capital. But the one that you hear the most about in the press that a lot of uh, brands were able to garner and attract for their businesses is in the form of venture capital. Um, at least in the last few years during the peak of the pandemic, but maybe not as much today. 
Well, and the motivation for friends and family investing in a business is very different. So I kind of want to park that because that's really an act of support and generosity. How would you define the goals of the financiers when it comes to investing in a business? Because it is not an act of altruism. They have specific goals that they are looking to fulfill as well. Absolutely. I think it's it's about making money like it is for all investors. The difference with any form of private capital, so money that's going into a business that's not publicly listed or mature, where you can easily buy and sell shares in that business on a stock exchange. Uh, investors are looking to invest in private businesses that they have a clear line of sight for towards a really big um, exit of some kind or liquidity event. But there's a lot of nuances that go into that decision-making process because investing in a private company of any kind is a highly liquid investment, meaning you know, once you park that money in that business, you got to wait for some sort of liquidity event or some sort of dividend payout when there's enough cash flow, as an example, for you to be able to get that money back. And the reason I emphasize that is because it's a marriage for an investor like any other with management, where it's like, I need to believe in the, the, the market. I need to believe in the product, the future prospects of both of those things, their ability to compete against the competitors. But I also need to be able to deal with management for seven to 10 years, uh, which is a typical investment horizon uh, for venture investment, as an example. So they want to make money, but they want to be able to do it uh, with people that they think they can um, maintain a relationship with and provide help to or have some sort of healthy rapport with as everybody is collectively working towards um, a liquidity event for the business. Yeah, I've watched enough Dragon's Den and Shark Tank to be dangerous. So what I hear you saying is it's as much about the who is at the helm of the business and how long do I foresee it being until I get my investment plus out. Exactly. So how does a business know when they're ready for outside financing? Like I'm an entrepreneur. Maybe I've been in business for one, three, five, ten years how do I know when my business is ready for an outside investor? Yep. So the fundamental thing about big money, especially, and by big, I mean venture capital or later stage forms of private equity, but specifically venture capital. Um, and we're talking the like tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of exactly. maybe even millions of dollars. Like we're talking big amounts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even with venture capital during the height of VC activity in consumer brands uh, a couple years ago, there were multi, multi million dollar rounds being done. Um, so, in terms of venture capital, there's different stages to venture capital. I actually produced a video with Forbes a couple years ago. If the viewers were to go on Google and type in venture capital and go on YouTube or the base. We'll link it in the show notes. We'll put it right. there so people can click below and check it out. Perfect. But what that video is going to explain is what I'm about to say, which is that. Um, with venture capital, as an example, there are different stages of a business and there's different rounds of financing that a business is able to do um, that is reflective of where they are in their journey. So you've got pre-seed rounds and seed rounds, which are very, very early stage venture capital rounds. Pre-seed being maybe you're just a founder with an idea and you're able to convince people with just a few slides to say, hey, I've got this incredible idea. I think you should back me and I think I can build a really great business here. Then as you progress to seed series A, series B, you know, um, well, there's a huge inflection point that is typically expected between seed and series A, where once you're at maybe a million dollars or $2 million in sales, 
now you can do maybe a $6 million Series A financing round. And then that money comes in and then you're working towards a Series B, which is where maybe you're doing about $10 million in sales. And now you're thinking about international expansion. If let's say you originally started in the US market, but now you want to expand to Europe or wherever else, Asia, then you do a Series C and you might raise $50 million. And now, now you're looking to go global. And then you might do a couple more later stage private rounds of financing before you, you know, have some sort of liquidity event, whether a company acquires you a competitor or you're able to go public and list on a stock exchange of some kind. So in terms of knowing when you can raise that capital, it can be as early as when you have an idea and a piece of paper, but all else equal, of course, it's very difficult to convince investors of your vision, especially if let's say, you know, if you're somebody who built like a Lululemon before and you're doing the next thing, people are going to try to throw money at you because you've got that pedigree. But if let's say you're a first time founder, that's going to be a lot harder to do. So the challenge for you is to try to get the business to default to live, probably to a couple hundred thousand at least in sales. And then maybe you can go and say, hey, I'm trying to you know raise $2 million as part of a seed round. Is anybody interested? Can you help me out? Well, and you said something interesting there that I want to pause on for a sec is you talked about, you know, obviously if it was a founder of something they, they'd done something amazing, amazing previously. That's obviously great currency and value to go into these meetings with. What are some of the things founders can be doing if they haven't already had, you know, a huge win to bolster confidence that people will want to to back them? It's hard. You know, I just want to call it spade a spade, especially for founders and um the consumer industries, and even within consumer, I'd say specifically for fashion and apparel, extremely, extremely tough. If you do look at the uh, breakdown of capital that's been deployed in consumer largely over the last few years, including during the heyday and the admin of, you know, VC dollars going behind brands such as Allbirds and Casper and what have you, um, in the case of the Caspers and the Dollar Shave Clubs, we've seen tons of money go into consumer packaged goods companies. Um, and those categories really lend themselves well to perhaps repeatability or some sort of a functional sale and like ease of scale. Whereas with a more accessory oriented brand, such as Allbirds, um, or even something more fashion oriented, it's, it's generally harder. I've seen less brands such as Allbirds get to like that size and scale at which Allbirds was able to with venture capital. But again, you know, some brands have been able to find those categories and really do um, well. But I think all is equal to know that you are, are, you know, ready to take it or that, you know, you can like tell that story really, really well. It, it really is a function of um, what you have to show for it. And in the earlier stages, like I mentioned, I know it's hard, uh, especially if you have nothing as a business to show to a potential investor, but this is where you matter as a founder. So now you have to invest in your story. You need to invest in telling people I've been in fashion for this many years. I know what I'm talking about and link to whatever you can in your pitch that helps to add credibility to your brand and to your ability to have, you know, the opportunity to create something really meaningful. Um, and if let's say you're a bit further along, um, I think what could be a bit more powerful is just leaning into um, your ability to like 
tap into a network, for example. So if let's say you're able to bootstrap something for a very short period of time, um, get as much help as you can from your community and like your city, local programs, whether it's government programs, like there's tons for fashion entrepreneurs, as an example, let's say you're able to bootstrap that together, whatever, maybe while you're doing that and you weren't able to get capital, I think what you should be doing is trying to network with as many powerful people as you can in the industry and building a personal rapport. And that goes back to my original point too, about investors want to invest in people that they like. It's a relationship business. People give people money. So I think you have to really lean into your ability to uh, cultivate a really strong network of folks that can vouch for you if they're not the ones writing the check, or at least have proximity to the people that can write those checks. It just helps to add far more qualification to your pitch, to your credibility when it is um, uh, when the time does come when you're in that boardroom asking for that money. So I hear two important things there. It's the network who you know, and it's the pitch. So let's parse them out and talk about them individually a little bit. For people who are living in, you know, cities, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, St. John's, Halifax, how do they, like the network in larger urban centers is very different than as you reduce the population of your, of your community down. So what are your kind of, what's your advice or your strategies about how to go out and foster that network? Like I can hear some people going, I don't know anyone in finance. Like how do I even find these people? Like what are some of your best practices for just starting and finding your network? Well, I think if you're in fashion and you may know some people in fashion who can help you to get connected to even more powerful people in fashion, more likely than not, those powerful people have already had to raise capital before. They already have really strong networks. So if you can build a rapport with them and even, um, and I guess now this conversation has gone in the direction of like very early stage, like if you're in the beginning stages of the business, because at that point you don't have numbers and dollars to show for it later on, like your pitch is going to be very much centered around what have you done? Like what is your retail strategy your distribution your revenue, whatever. But in the earlier stages, yeah, I think in terms of the network, like talk to people in fashion that are powerful, that might've done it before and have a really amazing network of people that they can tap, tap into in terms of getting in front of investors. It's an art to be able to do a cold pitch really well, or reach out to somebody and convince them to spend time with you. The way to go about it isn't to ask the person of their time to give you something. I think you should be thinking about what can you do for other people. I think that's just just a general skill for life, for success is like, you know, if you want to attract people and you want them to be uh, working with you in some capacity, you don't start with like, what can I ask them for? It's what can I do for them? And so with me, for example, in the past, I've had young entrepreneurs in fashion and retail reach out to me just saying, I want to, um, I have this really crazy idea. This is my plan. I'd love just like 15 minutes of your time on a call to run it by you. Cause I think it could be really interesting for you in this way. Um, so not only have they thought about how it could be relevant for me, but they've also, they packaged it in a very compelling way that I'm like, okay, what a 15 minute call, like, let's give it a shot. And persistence, persistence is really key. Somebody like me, my inbox is always exploding. It's yeah. really frustrating because I want to be able to respond to every founder, but there's, a, there's an art to it. And I think through iterating and trying different messaging, you can eventually get in front of the right people. But for me, I'd say first and foremost, network all the way to the top with people in fashion, because they're going to know those people. 
um, and then all the industries that are sort of uh, spanning the boundaries of fashion and capital and maybe other industries, media, because a lot of these investors that invest in media, they're likely to invest in fashion too. Well, and I think it's about starting somewhere. Like, don't try and say the first time I meet someone, it has to be the right person for my business. You never know who knows who and how to connect. So just go in with open authenticness, with polite persistence, and it's like a snowball, right? Like it's that cliche of, you know, one person knows another who knows another who knows another. Maybe it's your local business improvement association because you have a storefront. Maybe it's a local, you know, chamber of commerce. Like you never know where you will meet people, but just to go somewhere where you will know where you, where you don't know people. So you'll be sure to meet new people. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think that is that goes across almost whatever stage of fundraising you're in, whether you are an early founder or even as you are maybe more of a smaller midsize organization that has more under your belt, the value of expanding your network and looking beyond your own relationship borders holds immense promise for whatever your goals are. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that just goes without saying. Um, and also, I think there's something to be said about serendipity in all of this. Like, my career sort of came together through the most bizarre random encounters with people from all sorts of industries and backgrounds. And so I think if there's ever an opportunity for an entrepreneur early on in their journeys to lean into learning from somebody that skilled a business in an entirely different industry, take that opportunity too. Don't be blind to that because there's a lot of common threads between scaling a business um, regardless of whether one business is in industry A and you're in industry B. So lean into the serendipity of it all as well. Um, and you kind of just let things go from there. I totally agree with you. Uh, one thing that doesn't have too much serendipity to it is when you construct your pitch. So let's talk about that a little bit because that is a very important, um, you know, kind of living document for entrepreneurs, founders to have. What makes a great pitch? Or and maybe even let's back it up a little bit. Like when we say the pitch, the pitch, the pitch, what do we mean by that? What is this thing, the pitch that gets tossed around a lot? Well, in the most literal sense, it's usually a slide deck. So it could be like five to 10 slides, the starter one that you feel comfortable sharing with people that you're asking uh, to invest in your business and emailing around or having as like a, uh, a doc Docsend link. I'm forgetting. I think it's Docsend where you just send out the, the PDF and you can see who's been clicking it and seeing um, through the slides. But uh, so very rudimentary, like on a, in a rudimentary way, it's a slide deck. But then more than that, um, you know, I think it could be a pitch at a competition. It could be you telling a story in a totally serendipitous encounter at a conference where you happen to run into an investor. So I think you need to just be ready to tell the story of your business in really compelling, uh, in a compelling form through a slide deck, but also through a rehearsed, maybe one minute elevator pitch. If you find yourself in a situation or in the company of somebody that could really move the needle for you, but you need to be able to convince them and just know exactly what you're talking about. So it's oral, it's written, uh, it can come in many different forms. It could be an email, right? A written up email. It's quite diverse. If you had to break it down into components, what are kind of like the key elements of this pitch? Like, is it 
like we keep talking about the story like is there a narrative are there numbers are there like what are the pieces that go into this pitch no matter what stage you're at in your in your business yeah so if you google on uh just like venture capital pitch deck or like startup pitch deck for brands even or fashion pitch deck you're going to run into so many examples the best ones i find and again you know leaning into inspiration from other industries i think if you google airbnb's y combinator pitch deck from however many years ago it's so simple it's so short there's a website actually that has the pitch decks of all the top tech companies ever from oh i love this and you go in there and you look at it it's just like first slide you've got your logo second slide problem in one line so, uh the third slide solution in one line fourth slide how are we doing this fifth slide what's our business model meaning how do we make money sixth slide who's the competition and how are we different from that competition seventh slide what are the risks we are not stupid <laughs> we know there are risks to even what we're doing but we're thinking about them call them out right so there's a structure and there's so many examples of that I think simplicity is so key because it helps you to force uh, yourself about thinking about your business from a from first principles, right? So it helps to clear your mind too. I really encourage people when you put that pitch deck together, it's really an exercise for you first before it is meant to serve the purpose for which it was created, and lean into simplicity and follow examples of other very venerable brands and companies, and that's it. Like it doesn't really have to be more complicated than that. Do you have any favorite pitches, not ones that you've even heard necessarily, but ones that are just kind of out in the zeitgeist where you're like, ah, oh, like they, they did something that really nailed it. Like you mentioned the Airbnb one, but are there any other pitches in the consumer goods realm that you kind of can reflect on and go, that one's worth looking up. Like that was really, they had it going on. Yeah. I mean, I, if you look at some of the early pitch decks of, you know, brands i'll give canadian examples <laughs> you know just why not um tout our own sort of companies but like i've, I've seen early pitch decks for brands such as majuri and i've seen early pitch decks for brands such as sheer text and i think what they did really well is just lean so heavily into knowing how they can scale with capital and how they know they're leaning into a category that has tons of white space in it that lends itself to um, a significant influx of capital so that it can they can capture significant market share very, very quickly. So, you know, those are examples of like a few Canadian brands in terms of like consumer companies that have run in the US, like the early pitch decks of the likes of, you know, Casper and Away and all of them, like they're really strong pitch decks. I think ultimately the dynamics of the market shifted where it just became very hard for them to be, like we can talk about it if we have enough time today. Maybe that's a different session around why venture capitalists have pulled back from investing in consumer brands. Mm -hmm. But at the time when there was still that arbitrage opportunity where brands were raising tons of money to buy out Facebook and Google ads because they weren't as expensive and there wasn't as much competition for keywords. And it was like, I can spend $2 on ads that I, you know, from all this money I raised from a VC and I know I'll get $5 in lifetime value from the customer. You, you scale and grow the business through that arbitrage, right? And through that Delta. But as that sort of has shifted, um, I think it is harder to tell the pitch now purely from like a, an arbitrage standpoint, because a lot mm -hmm. of brands before it would be like, this is how we make money. Our CAC is so low. Our LTV is really high. Nowadays, I think what can make a compelling pitch, like I love brands that lean into celebrity, right? Like when you look at 
Um, I don't know what sort of private capital has gone into brands, such as, you know, um, uh, Kylie in the early days or Venture, who are the people that got to invest in those businesses. But I think those pitch decks were probably really compelling by virtue of their proximity to somebody of such significant influence and power and how they were able to you know, scale that brand. And so I think today it is becoming harder and harder to tell the story through a deck because there is a lot of noise in the market. It is harder to break out and scale, but this is where you really need to lean into novelty and novelty can come in the form of, like I just said, maybe attachment to a really big name of some kind that you can, you know, farm their community for sales and followers and customers, or it could come with like extremely novel concepts, like a net new way of doing something for me in our portfolio, like a retail example, I invested in a, um, a corner store uh, retailer called Foxtrot. It's based in the U.S. It's Starbucks meets Pret-a-Manger meets, you know, a grocery shop. It's a completely different take on the corner store. And nobody was really doing it that way. So I was like, okay, like, let's let's give this a shot. Um, even in, like, coffee shops, I know it's not, like, fashion-related, but, like, over the last few years, you've seen some really cool coffee shop brands, like, get to 20, 30 locations and get bought out by Nestle for, like, close to a billion dollars because they were just doing coffee in a slightly different way. But the pressure is really on you to show, okay, I'm doing this differently, but also show the metrics to traction to suggest that I'm really onto something. I'm seeing the pull from the market. So anytime you lean into novelty, obviously some people love that investors and they're going to want to lean into it and they're going to want to take those risks. Most of them will be skeptical. So you have to do extra work just to show a few proof points around why your big crazy idea is actually going to work. Well, and what I'm hearing you say is it's not just about your your product it's not just about the commodity you need to be taking a look at like what's happening in the world around you to validate why your commodity or your concept or the concept of your commodity like i'm sure Allbirds has a great kind of yeah. twist that way why is it unique in the marketplace so it's about being aware of what's happening in the world and you know we keep tossing around the you know we're talking about the market this elusive market cosm it's like the cloud the market you know these things that kind of have an identity on their own when we're talking about the market for people who aren't you know maybe um you know financially savvy can you just sort of say you know what the market is and why it impacts outside financing like why does the market matter when it comes to founders entrepreneurs looking for money yeah well i mean i think there's um gosh it's such a it's a very complex answer but if i have to really distill it down to the most you know simple concepts first and foremost investors can have herd mentality like any other group of people right so sometimes <laughs> Something becomes hot and then everybody just wants to change it. Like when, when there was that arbitrage opportunity with paid advertising five, six years ago, by way of you know, Google and Facebook and whatnot, this is when the brands, you know, the, the likes of Away and Casper, they were really starting to expand. Um, people saw an opportunity for these brands to grow really quickly. And so everybody just started to throw money into them. And so there's a bit of a herd mentality there, but when, they started to see, oh, okay, well, DTC can only get you far. There were a few brands that then started to do retail really well. Like then Allbirds like started to open stores and a lot of brands died because they couldn't do retail well, but the ones that did retail well survived. And so, so now investors were like, okay, well, when we want to invest in DTC brands, we also have to invest in entrepreneurs that know how to do retail really well when they get to that point. So that was a new learning, right? So when we talk about the market, it's like seeing businesses 
you know, when they thrive, you chase them, but then based on the ones that die and how they iterate and pivot and continue to survive, then you, you know, investors are also rewriting their playbooks for what they should be looking for. Right. Um, but systematically, like things can change. Like when so many brands started to get launched and like five, six years ago, that's when Shopify was really starting to go and tons and tons of people were really starting to launch businesses on Shopify. And that whole trend reached like peak euphoria during the pandemic because everybody had a side hustle going on and everybody was creating a store. The problem is now there's such a flood of brands that are all trying to scale and hack growth in exactly the same way. Ad inventory has gone through the roof. CACs have gone through the roof. CAC meaning cost of acquisitions. The arbitrage opportunity is less and less. And so when investors started to see like, oh gosh, like it's not the case anymore where I can give $5 million to a brand and know they can buy a bunch of ads and then scale like they can't do that profitably anymore, then it was like, okay, we're going to stop investing in this space now. And the brands that survived were the ones that were profitable or the ones that were able to do something interesting, like leading it to celebrity or like organic communities that didn't require significant marketing expenditures for, you know, customer acquisition. So the market, it's like understanding what's happening around you. Investors are doing the same thing. And then they're rewriting the playbook around how they want to deploy capital based on how the market is changing around them. And then more pragmatically, like we're in a high interest rate environment right now. Like there's so many implications on businesses because of that. Um, you know, there's just a whole kind of, a whole bunch of systematic factors that can affect your ability to raise capital. But in the case of brands specifically, I think it's largely been done through studying what works well in, in the field. And then based on what doesn't work well, investors have pulled back accordingly. I'm sure we could have a whole, you know, two hour conversation just around that in general. But I think that is a great, you know, kind of bird's eye view for people. And if they want to dig into it more, maybe we'll put a couple of links in the show notes of I know you've done some great writing and some other places where people could get a bit more information. The final thing I want us to kind of talk about is, you know, there's the meeting, there's the pitch, but then there's the whole fundraising process in general. What from a really like kind of pulled back macro point of view, what are the expectations that founders and entrepreneurs should have as they go into this fundraising process with a private equity firm or a fund? What should they be prepared to answer? And what is the expectation for, you know, kind of ownership or or or, you know, you know, it could be equity, it could be debt. What are the what are the things they should know about as they start to accept or consider accepting? outside financing? I think the first thing is to really understand each asset class very, very clearly. Like what does it entail? Whether, you know, debt being different, venture is different, private equity is different, growth equity is different. Growth equity is more big checks, but without trying to own majority stakes as they do in private equity and like levering up companies and doing financial engineering and all that kind of stuff to generate a return as private equity investors. But the first thing I think is having the ability to just understand at least at a somewhat basic level or intermediate level level what each of these asset classes entail um, and there's so many resources online to be able to do that next step is to talk to people find one or two people depending on the asset class that you're seeking um, and asking them like what was your experience like what worked well what didn't work well and you should talk to founders that were successful having raised money and founders who failed having raised money because they're going to have very different things that they're going to tell you. A lot of the times when things are on the up and up, the, the clauses that can sometimes be hidden in contracts between you and the investor, they never need to be summoned, right? 
But if things go south, a lot of founders, you know, I've spoken to would say, oh gosh, like I will never agree to that again. Or my investors screwed me over. Like, it's just not fair. I would do this differently in the future. So talk to people as well. Um, at a very best basic level, when it comes to venture capital specifically, like I'll just, you know, uh, go into detail for this one for the benefit of the audience. But the process typically works where you get introduced to a fund and you might have some back and forth with uh, a team member. And then if there's interest from that team member um, through that conversation, which would likely entail you presenting a pitch deck of some kind, then they would invite you to do some due diligence, might ask you to open a data room. Data room is something that you would have all your files in, your pitch deck, your financials, your legal contracts with suppliers, everything to just share with an investor when they're ready to get to that second stage of due diligence with you. Again, you can go on Google and search up data room, what should you have in there, tons of resources around that. And then that whole process kicks up a song and dance between you and the investor around them really getting a grasp on their business, introducing you to other members of the investment committee so that their colleagues can ask you questions and they're going to run their process to understand, do we want to write this business a term sheet? The term sheet is the document that governs the amount of capital that you're receiving from the investor at which terms, which includes valuation. And depending on how much money you're getting and the valuation at which you're getting that money, that's going to dictate what percentage ownership this investor is not going to have in your business. It articulates the class of shares that they get in the business. There's preferred shares, common shares. I'd encourage people to read up on the different share structures, capital structure of a business, because different shares have different rights. For example, if you sell your business um, at a certain price, that's lower than the valuation at which the investors invested. The investors are going to get their money back before you, you know, little yeah. things like that. If you sign the term sheet, that kicks off like a one month process of legal due diligence where the investor will get lawyers involved, they'll draft up documents, get everything finalized and sealed. And then once they've received the investment, the next step for the investor is portfolio management. So expect to hear from them. Maybe if they gave you enough money, they're joining your board of directors. They're going to be a director on your, you know, um, on your governance committees or whatever. So this whole process, all in all, from having an initial pitch to getting money can take anywhere from sometimes a, a day or two if you're in the Valley and it's a hot company. And some of these funds out down there, they'll do that in like a day and they'll get on a plane. It's quite, there's a lot of stories. But that rarely ever happens. That's like if Elon Musk is launching a new business, there's like yeah. new funds competing. Uh, it can take a few weeks. If it's an early stage fund that's in the business of investing in 100 startups a year at small checks, they don't need to do that much diligence. Or it could be like upwards of two to three months if you're raising a couple hundred thousand to a couple million from an institutional investor that has a very formal due diligence process. And then once that couple of process is over, then it's just like a lifetime of working with the investor. Um, unless they get bought out, of course. But those are some of the steps, tons of resources on Google. So I'd encourage people to go and check those out. Kazem, before we wrap up, I'm just curious as a man who has his finger on the pulse of what's going on uh, in the markets and whatnot, what are you seeing from a fashion commodities brand's point of view that you think is really interesting or really exciting or really unique to this particular moment in time? I think coming out of the pandemic, there was a renewed interest in really exciting physical experiences. So I think there's some brands that have just done really like great a great job of activation for the communities that they serve. And in Canada, again, I'm thinking of the likes of Essence. I think just Essence gets experience right just so so well. And then on the um, uh, on the technology side. Again, it's not really relevant for fashion entrepreneurs, but it is in the sense that it's just becoming easier and easier to, to launch and scale a brand. 
you don't have to go it alone. There are so many platforms now that are trying to help you find suppliers more quickly. Or if you're in beauty, there's so many platforms that are helping you to formulate more quickly. It's important, even if you're on the the product side of things to really understand what's happening on the technology side, because these are all hacks that can help you with your business. With ChatGPT, if you've got an idea, you can rely on ChatGPT to come up with the product messaging based on a picture you upload that can convince people. So now you don't need a content marketing team, you know? You can have like AI do conversational commerce for you on your website and do support so that now you, you have to hire one less person to take care of returns or whatever. You can totally hack that technically so that there's less and less pressure on you. So in terms of trends, I think I'm really leaning into people that do physical retail experiences really well in addition to online because the pendulum swung right back to how it was just before the pandemic. It really did. Like it was a fast yeah. return to what we knew. Like yeah. there was the Spotify boom and so many brands I think thought we're going to live here forever and woof. Yeah, exactly. So I think what we've learned is like, you know, it, it's still important to think of everything in terms of the omni-channel and brands that succeed do it really well from a 360 standpoint. And then separately from a technology standpoint, it's so important to keep your pulse on new things such as AI or like platforms that are launching to help you launch brands more ubiquitously or at like a much um, a lesser cost. And that's just going to help you. Like the more you know, the more you can save yourself heartache and money, frankly, to do things that, um, you know, the faster you can do, the faster you can grow and scale as well. Cosm, this has been so valuable. I know people listening are hopefully furiously taking notes and we'll look up many of the resources that you mentioned. If people want to reach out to you directly or they're interested in perhaps digging into some of the writing you've done for the Global Mail and other publications, where are the best people, where are the best places for people to find you? Well, you can go to my uh, uh, blog, it's fireant.co. Um, and over there, I have so many market maps. For example, just recently, the logic covered my market map for generative AI startups serving the retail industry. So you have like a map of a hundred startups, some of which, which are doing, you know, product marketing, some of which are doing conversational commerce, some of which that are helping you with product design, like using AI to do the creative process. Right. I mean, there's some ethical stuff about that. Maybe that's, that's a different conversation. There's a lot to discuss in that. <laughs> so, you have tons of market maps on my blog and it's such an, and even like some related to uh, the Canadian landscape for tech startups and brands. You can get a snapshot of everybody in our country that's doing cool things. If you want to reach out to other founders or agencies that can help you. And then separately on my website, um, gossamhoma.com, you can see just all the articles that I've written over the years about different trends. Um, if you want to get up to speed on them uh, or understand how they might potentially impact your business. And then of course you can reach out to me, but Amazing. the challenge is, making an email that make me want to respond, but no, I'm actually not that guy. I respond to everybody. So if you want to reach out to me, they can reach out to uh, uh, me through winningtoventures.com. Amazing. We'll link all those below as well. Cosm, I always feel smarter after I have spoken with you. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your, your insights and your expertise. It's my pleasure, Dom. Anytime. Thank you so much for being here today. Fashion Talks is written, produced, and hosted by me, Donna Bishop, and there is a link below in the show notes if you'd like to get in touch. Thank you to CAFA, the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards, Jason Perrier, technical producer, and to Nick Crane for the amazing artwork. Hope you'll join me here again soon.